Let's pray together. Father, we do want to walk by faith and not by sight. We want our vision to be filled with our King Jesus. To see him, to trust him, to know that he is everything for us. And that whatever was to our profit, we now consider loss for the sake of him. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask you to open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's safe to say that our culture has, has undergone a revolution in the last 10 years in its understanding of what marriage is. I think there are a number of events that we could point to that illustrate this. We could look at the Supreme Court decision, Obergefell versus Hodges back in 2015, or even the Windsor decision that was handed down two years earlier in 2013. But for me, the event that revealed just how mainstream the new view of marriage had become was that announcement from the President of the United States that came in 2012. If you'll remember, in the spring of 2012, the President sat for an interview with ABC News to announce that his views had changed on the nature of, of marriage. And I'm just going to quote to you a little bit from the interview. He said this. He said, I've just concluded that for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And then he goes on from there, and he expresses this in terms of his Christian convictions. He says, Michelle and I are both practicing Christians, and obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others, but you know, when we think about our faith... The thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but also it's the golden rule, you know, treat others the way that you want to be treated. My, act my reaction then to what the president said probably wasn't that different for, from many of you. I couldn't have disagreed more with what he said. It was pretty stunning, actually, to hear a sitting president cite scripture as if Jesus himself would be in support of sexual immorality. But also when I heard this, I thought that there's really nothing new here. The president is a sign of our times. He's not the cause of our times. If you think that the former president caused the massive revolution in our culture on the nature of marriage, you would be massively mistaken about that. Changes in our culture's understanding of marriage have, have accelerated over the last 10 years, but the seeds of this change have been really long in the making. Our culture long ago embraced the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Our culture long ago embraced the, the idolatry of sex and the diminishing of marriage. Our culture long ago embraced the ubiquity of modern birth control methods and the severing of human sexuality from its connection to children and family. 
Our culture long ago embraced no-fault divorce and the idea that we can change spouses like we change our socks. Our culture long ago embraced the idea that there's no difference between men and women. Gender is just a social construct that we learn from culture and that it's not something that, that, that's given to us by God at creation. Our culture long ago embraced the idea that gender shouldn't matter when it comes to human sexuality. And, and so we have a whole generation of young people who see nothing at all with this new revolution in the idea of marriage. So no, our culture's devolution did not begin in 2012 with an announcement from the President of the United States. This slide has been a long time in coming. If you haven't, I want you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 21 to 33. And what I want us to do is to try to trace out what God's thoughts are on the meaning of marriage. This passage that we're going to look at is more than a how-to guide about how husbands and wives should relate to one another. This passage defines for us what marriage is. This passage is, is actually, really, it's just an extension of what Paul says in verse 18, where Paul says that we are to be filled with the Spirit. And by this, he means be controlled by the Spirit. And one manifestation of the Spirit's control over our lives is how we think about marriage and how we relate to each other as husbands and wives within marriage. So my focus today, this morning, is really not going to be on what's going wrong out there in the world with marriage. My focus today is what needs to go right in here with the marriages in this church. The truth of the matter is, is that too many pews across this country are filled with people whose thinking about marriage differs very little from the rest of the world. And so we have to see, as we come to the scripture, that there is more to marriage than what the world is alleging right now. And Ephesians chapter 5 and 21 to 33 confirms that there is more. And so... I think that this text is teaching us actually that God's glory is at stake in marriage. And we see that in three ways, and this is where we're going. We can see God's glory at stake in marriage in a wife's submission, God's glory in a husband's love, and then God's glory in marriage itself. So the first thing here is God's glory in a wife's submission. I want everyone to look at verse 21. Starts out this way. It says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, I want to say this right up front. I understand that that word submission or be subject to one another, this idea is something that throws up a red flag for many people when they initially hear it. For many readers, when they see that, it makes them think immediately about coercion and abuse. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about coercion and abuse. When Paul uses that term and he says be subject, it's a military term and it refers to ranking someone in a, in a subordinate position. So to be subject to someone means to respect and to follow an appointed leader. That's what it's talking about. But what does Paul mean when he says be subject to one another? Now some people read this and they think that 
to one another means that Paul's just saying you need to have mutual submission in your families and in the church, which means that everybody in the church just submits to everyone. Everybody submits to everybody in the sense that we all serve one another and we all put one another's interests and needs above our own. So it's just a mutual submission between husbands and wives, between the different people in the church, parents and children. Everybody just submits to each other in that sense of serving one another. Now, of course, we should all serve one another and put one, uh, put one another's interests before our own. That is true. But actually, I don't think that's what Paul means by this term right here. In fact, this term is just not used that way elsewhere. Paul is using a word that is stronger than that. It's a word that denotes respect and adherence to an authority. So Paul isn't telling everyone to submit to everyone. He's telling one group of people to submit to another group. And Paul makes this crystal clear in the next verse because he specifies. He says, be subject to one another. He's actually going to address three different groups uh, of people. But the first group that he addresses and he specifies is wives in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's actually no verb in verse 22. Verse 22 depends on the verb from verse 21. And so Paul is specifying who is supposed to submit to whom. Wives are supposed to follow the leadership of their husbands, of their own husbands, he says. So Paul is saying that the proper authority for a wife is her own husband. But I want you to notice what he does not say. Paul could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves. In other words, Paul might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives. In fact, that would have been quite at home in that culture that they were in, in the first century. It was a very patriarchal culture. And it wouldn't have been shocking to hear someone say such a thing. But he doesn't turn to the husbands and say, go compel submission from your wives. He turns to the wives and he addresses them and he says, be subject. It may also be understood in the middle voice, which would mean something like, submit yourselves to your own husbands. What that means is that it's the wives who are called on voluntarily to submit to their husbands. The responsibility is falling to the wives to affirm their husband's leadership. It's not to the husbands to make them or coerce them or manipulate them somehow to do this. There's an application here, husbands. Husbands, if you ever find yourself trying to force your wife to follow your leadership, then you need to know that there is a problem. Especially if it's a pattern over the course of your marriage. And you need to be asking yourself, why isn't she following me? Why am I having to try to force this? Now, the, the answer may be, husbands, that she's in rebellion against God and what his role is for her in marriage, what her calling is. That's possible if that's the case. You can pray for her and tenderly exhort her. But I've found that it's often the case that the reason the wife is not following is because the husband is being a crummy leader. But no matter what the reason is, let's just be clear, you must never try to coerce or manipulate submission. Obviously, you would never be physically coercive 
with a spouse in anything, that would be sinful and abusive. But, but I just want to say, husbands, neither would you be verbally abusive or manipulative in this way. If you have to be verbally, uh, if you have to verbally and emotionally intimidate your spouse into submission, then the problem is not her, it's you. And you need to repent. So wives, what this does mean is that the onus is on you to affirm the leadership of your husband and to follow it as to the Lord. You are not to submit to every man. Just to one man, your husband. God calls you to submit to your husband as to the Lord, which means you should view your submission to your husband as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. So wives, the narrow road that leads to life for you is this path of affirming your husband's headship in your marriage. Why does God require this? Well, look at verse 23. He says why. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, in our culture, our culture treats leadership kind of like it's a jump ball. The referee comes in, he tosses it up, and whoever is the bigger and stronger gets possession of leadership. Okay, that's how our culture treats leadership in marriage. It's just whoever's better at it can, can do it, or maybe it's a 50-50 thing, something like that. That's not how God appoints leadership in marriage. It's not a jump ball. It's more like an inbound pass where the referee has already assigned the possession before the ball even comes in to play. And, of course, that's what this is in, in God's economy of marriage. He's already assigned the, the ball of leadership to the husband, and he's supposed to lead. So this verse is saying that the husband is the head of the wife, which means he is the authority. Now, some people read this and they try to explain this away. They try to say, well, husband's not really the head in that sense because head doesn't mean authority. It just means something like source. He's the source of the wife because the woman was taken from the man's side. Th that is an incorrect interpretation of this. Anybody who says that, they're just trying to get away from, from what the clear sense of the text is. And we, and we know this because the husband's headship is patterned after whose headship? Christ's headship. And it's Christ's headship over the church, as Christ also is head of the church, it says in the verse. And if you look at chapter 1 and verse 22 of Ephesians, it says this, of Christ's headship. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as what? Head over all things to the church, which is his body. Obviously, when you look at Christ's headship there in Ephesians 1, headship has to do with authority. And so in this way, the husband is called to be the leader and the authority in the home because it's patterned after Christ's headship. Look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Whew. Now, this verse has scared a lot of people over the years. Does it really mean a wife has to affirm the leadership of her husband in everything? <laughs> well, this is where we got to step back and we, say, we have to say, look, this is an analogy, but analogies, if you press them too far, they start to break down because th there's a key difference between Christ and husbands. 
Christ is sinless and perfect. Husbands are not. <laughs> Wives are not supposed to submit to abuse or to a sin. No authority on earth is an absolute authority, certainly not a husband's authority. All authority comes from God, and he, all authority derives from him, and no authority that he gives does he ever call on or tell that authority to coerce sin. So when submitting to a husband requires someone to submit to abuse or to sin, the Christian wife must follow the example of Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 when they said we must obey God rather than men. So she shouldn't submit to that. So, so the question then becomes, if, if we have that qualification up front, then why does Paul use this expansive language in everything? Because Paul really does intend for wives to model how the church relates to Christ. This doesn't mean that a wife has no opinion or deliberation with her husband. It does mean that there's a happy deference that is pervasive in everything that she does. So in my own marriage, this, this doesn't mean that it's always easy for my wife to do this. It certainly doesn't mean that I'm always right. If she were here, she would say, amen. But right or wrong, she always aims to support my leadership. So Susan, my wife and I, her name is Susan. We have this uh, perennial disagreement between us. It's happened over the course of our marriage. It's caused a little bit of conflict over the years. But we tend to butt heads a little bit when it, it's time to figure out when is the appropriate moment to fill the gas tank in the cars. And this is how it usually goes. It goes like this. The gas gauge will be getting a little low, and she'll politely say, you know, it looks like we're getting a little low on gas. To which I'll reply, no, nah, we got plenty. And on more than one occasion, she has had to endure the uncertainty of coasting around town on fumes and because I don't want to stop and pull over, and I think we can go just a little bit further. And she's been very patient with me over the years when I don't deserve it. Several years ago, we were driving, we were living in Dallas, Texas, and we were driving down this like 10 lane freeway one Sunday afternoon, and we had one of our little conversations. We were on my on the way to visit my aunt who lived in the north of Dallas, and she noticed that we're getting a little gas. She said, We're getting a little go, low on gas. I said, No, nah, we got plenty. So we drive the 15 miles up to visit my aunt. We're on the way home. Looks like we're getting a little low on gas. No, nah, we got plenty. Do I need to finish this story? I don't need to finish this story. You already know where this is going. So we're going down the freeway. It's like a 10-lane freeway. And all of a sudden, I push the gas, and I realize it's not responding. It's starting to sputter. And it just so happened that we were coming up to an exit, as I noticed this. And it was an uphill exit. But I had just enough momentum to swing over to the exit and go up the exit. And when we got to the top, there was a green light in a gas station on the other side, the car had died at the top of the exit, and there was no engine, it was dead, but I had enough momentum to roll through the light in the, in, the, in the street and into the gas station right up to the gas pump. She was really pleased with me. 
And I looked at her, and I was like, what? I told you, you know. I was lucky that time. That wasn't even the worst time. The worst time was another, she was nine months pregnant. She was nine months pregnant. We were going out on our last date night before the baby came. And so we were dressed up and going to a nice restaurant. And we do this thing again where I, we don't have a lot of gas in the car, and I don't want to pull over, and we're in an intersection, and it just goes. And she's nine months pregnant. She has to shimmy over the console. And I got to get out in the back and push. And another guy who's like a valet over here notices, and he's helping me push the car into this gas station. So this is the, the this has happened more than once. So this, this ought to tell you something about me and about her. Number one, that I'm not perfect, and she is very patient. Ladies, sometimes submission is going to be difficult, and the difficulty is not always going to be because your husband's being abusive or asking you to do something that's sinful. It may be just because he's being a bonehead. He may be doing something that you believe to be unwise or that be, could be done in a better way. And oftentimes, you actually do know better than him. So affirming his leadership is going to be trying to figure out how to honor that leadership, no matter what the situation is, and not taking that moment to try and undermine it. You need to offer counsel to your husband. Make sure he has all the wisdom he can glean from you as you make decisions. And husbands, you better be receiving that counsel. Go read 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You're not permitted to just Go on about your business and do what you want and keep your own counsel. You better know her and know what she thinks. And wives, you need to offer that counsel. But wives, you also need to offer him your patience and your support, even when it's difficult to do so because you're disagreeing on a matter. So God's glory is revealed in a certain way in, the, in a wife's submission, but God's glory is also revealed in a husband's love. Everybody look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the wife's responsibility is to submit. Notice here that the husband's responsibility is to love. These are different callings that are given to the husband and the wife. Um, it's not that wives aren't supposed to love, but it is that God is putting the accent on the husband's vocation to love his wife. But notice this. This calling for the husband to love his wife is not just a state of mind on the husband's part. This love issues forth in certain kinds of behaviors from the husband to the wife. And we can summarize those behaviors in three words. And write them down. Leadership, protection, and provision. All three of these are in this text. Husband, you love your wife by leading her, protecting her, and providing for her. We've already seen the leadership assignment in verse 23 where we read that the husband is the head of the wife. I think we see the protection and the provision implied in verses 28 and 29. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh. But how do you treat your own flesh? He nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Did you see the nourishing and the cherishing? Just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, and just like you husbands nourish and cherish your own flesh, so also that's how you care for your wife. What does that mean, men? It means, well, think about this. How do you care for yourself? When you're at home, you're sitting in your favorite chair, and you're hungry, and your stomach growls, does somebody have to come to you and talk you in to go and finding something to eat? No, when you're hungry, you eat. You provide for yourself instinctively. If I come up to you after church, I'm not going to do this, but if I came up to you after church and I reared back like this, like I was going to punch you in the face, what do you do? You're going to put up and block or hit me first. Or you're going to defend yourself instinctively when you see it coming. That's what you're going to do for your own flesh. You're going to cherish it and protect it. That's how you're supposed to love your wife. You lead her and you give her your protection and your provision and you do so in a way that is instinctive. You don't have to be told to do this because it's like your own body. You do it because you're caring her for her just like it's your own body. This love is modeled on Christ's love for the church, which means that it's first of all sacrificial. Look at the second part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, your headship in your home does not exist so that you can put your desires and your needs before everybody else's in the home. Your headship exists so that you can give yourself up for your wife just like Christ gave himself up for you. That means that being the leader and the provider and the protector is sometimes going to be hard for you. There are going to be times when you are having a conflict with your wife and there will be times when the conflict is her fault and you're going to feel like disengaging emotionally from her to punish her. But you don't get to do that in your household. You don't get to be passive aggressive or whatever it is that you do to show your disapproval until your wife swallows her pride and comes and tries to make amends with you. You are the leader, which means that you are leading the charge in your home for reconciliation when there is conflict. You get to treat your wife like Jesus treats you as a sinner. Did Jesus wait for you to get your act together before he came and gave his life for you? Did he wait for you to get your act together before he came and wooed you to himself? He did not do that. Jesus came for you when you were still shaking your fist in his face. Jesus led out in your reconciliation. And you must do the same for your spouse even when you don't feel like it. Well, you can say, well, I'm really mad at her. Well, you get unmad. I'm not a real good communicator, then you get to be a better communicator. And you lead. And you take the initiative and you model tenderness and mercy and love and forgiveness and every single thing that she needs to make submitting to you a joy for her. You say, but that's hard. Well, yeah, it's hard. 
This is what you signed up for. But Jesus blazed the trail for us, and you won't have to do anything harder than what he did to love you. So you follow Jesus, and you love your wife self-sacrificially. Why should you do this? Well, Paul says there's actually a purpose in Christ's love for his bride. Look at verse 26. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself up for his bride with a purpose in mind for her. He wanted to sanctify her in the present to perfect her for the, for the last day. In other words, Jesus has his bride's total spiritual renewal in mind as he initiates reconciliation with her. So husbands, does your love for your wife have a purpose like Jesus's? Are you self-consciously calculating how you can cheer your wife on to love and good deeds? How you can encourage her to be more and more Christ-like until the last day appears? If you don't have your wife's sanctification and perfection in mind, you aren't loving her as Christ loves his bride. Verse 28, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Again, husbands, a husband's care for his wife must be instinctive and intuitive just as he cares for himself. Your bride is not just your roommate, like you had a roommate in college, except this one happens to be female. No, the Bible says you are one flesh with her. Her hurts, her desires, her needs, her wants, her dreams are your hurts and your desires and your, your needs and your dreams because you're one flesh with her. And you will never love your bride as Christ loves his bride if you are indifferent towards your spouse. And that in kind of indifference that crops up in marriages is deadly because indifference and coldness and passivity comes from months and years and decades of leaving things unattended in your marriage. And God has called you husbands to lead. And that means that every single day you must get up and take the initiative to cultivate your vineyard. If you don't, you will wake up one day and you will find thistles and briars covering over the face of your garden. And it will be devastating to your wife and to your children and to you. And it will bring a reproach on the gospel. So you lead her and love her and care for her as Christ has led and loved and cared for you. And one day, when they are lowering you into the ground and throwing the dirt on, you want your kids looking in and saying, our daddy loved our mama. Just like Christ loved the church. So there's God's glory in a wife's submission. God's glory in a husband's love. But there's God's glory in marriage. Look at verse 29. Notice it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Now, here's another verse confirming that our marriages are to be patterned after Christ's marriage to his church. Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride. And it says he does so because we're members of his body. He cares for his own body. So Christ doesn't hate his own flesh. He loves it and cares for it instinctively. And then he says this in verse 31. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that verse, verse 31, is a quotation from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And it is the single most important verse in all of the Bible explaining the meaning and the purpose of marriage. In fact, the most important statements about marriage in the New Testament come from Jesus and from Paul. And in every case where they talk about it, they quote the Old Testament to establish what marriage is. But when Jesus and Paul quote the Old Testament, they never point to the great polygamous kings of Israel like David and Solomon, not those guys. They don't look to the great polygamous patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't look to those guys for all their, their importance in biblical theology. Jesus and Paul never look to any of those guys as the paradigm for marriage. Instead, they, without exception, go back to the pre-fall monogamous union of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they say, they quote from Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are saying that marriage is the covenantal union before God of one man and one woman. They leave their families to form a new family. They are united together in a conjugal bond, and they become one flesh, meaning they've become like blood relations through the consummated covenant of marriage. But notice at the beginning of verse 31 that Paul doesn't introduce the quotation like he is often does. He doesn't say, as it is written, or the scripture says. It's just without introduction, he quotes the verse. And I think he does this because he wants that first phrase to have its real connective force. For this cause. For this cause. Which is connecting us back up to verse 30. It's saying, why does a man leave his father and mother and join himself to a, a wife? Why does marriage exist in the world? Why is it that we have this age-old institution that cuts across all cultures and times and all religious groups that one man and one woman would come together for life? Why does marriage exist for this cause? And it points us back to verse 30. What's the cause in verse 30? Because Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. For that reason, marriage exists in the world. Marriage exists to tell a story about Jesus' marriage to his bride. So Paul says it in the next verse. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. When Paul talks about mysteries, he's not talking about something that's currently mysterious. This is a technical term in Paul's writings. A mystery is something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed in the gospel. What is it? that was once hidden, but now is revealed in the gospel. From the beginning, God intended marriage to be a depiction of the gospel. For this cause, people get married, because Jesus cares for his church. That's why God made marriage. Marriage exists to manifest the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. 
That means your marriage exists to display to the world the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. Husbands, you are to love your bride in such a way that people can see Christ's love for his church. Wives, you are to submit to your husband in such a way that the world can see the loveliness of Christ and the obedience of his bride. We are Christ's flesh and blood by covenant. We belong to our beloved and he belongs to us. And our marriages exist to draw attention to that. So wives, do you see how God's glory is at stake in your affirmation of your husband's leadership? Husbands, do you see how God's glory is at stake in your love for your wife? To everyone, do you see how God's glory is at stake in the marriages of this church? Your witness to this community consists largely in the marriages in this church. If your marriages are falling apart, your witness is falling apart. When a marriage falls apart, it says something blasphemous about Jesus and the gospel. That's why we care so much about it. Listen, marriage is hard. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. But God can do this. God can bring to you the resources that you need to be faithful to the calling that he's given you in your marriage. But listen, I don't think you're going to be able to get there if you can't see the end from the beginning. If you can't see what the end goal of it all is. Marriage is not a personal lifestyle choice. Marriage is about the glory of a God and about whether or not people are going to see the glory of God in the world. You ever wonder why marriage is under assault in our culture? What would you do if you were the devil? If God had made this little icon of the gospel and put it in the world as this enacted parable of the gospel, this message of how Jesus loves his bride on display to the world, what would you do to marriage if you were the devil? You'd try to tear that thing apart and destroy it as, and pervert it as best you could. Because you don't want people to see Jesus in it. That's what's happening right now in our culture. But it can't happen in here among us, among God's people. We have to take God's definitions and we have to take what he says and see his glory as the end of it all. My wife and I, we hit a rough patch during our third year of marriage. I was still in seminary. I was trying to finish a PhD. And um, I came to realize I wasn't taking the long view of our marriage and where I wanted us to end up one day. And I really wanted, really badly, for the years to gather up blessing and tenderness and not bitterness and indifference. And so on our anniversary that year, I wrote a poem for my wife that was a bit of a vision of what I was hoping and praying we might end up to be. I have permission to share this, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. It's just a little story and kind of a prayer, and then we'll finish with that. The old man took her tired hand to hold for one last time. The years had finally pressed her to her final breaths of life. Their wrinkled hands and warm embrace brought back the long-gone years, the memory of their happy times and those dissolved in tears. 
The old man saw in her ill frame the girl that stole his heart. He saw in her that gracious gaze that filled their home with warmth. His mind turned back to lighter days when she did make her mark. The children, her love reared for them, her single heart for God. He also felt the weight of grace that marked her many years, how she had borne him patiently when he did cause the tears. The old man said, my love, the time was cruelly short to me. I cannot say goodbye to you and let your passing be. How can I ever say farewell or ever let you part? You're my only precious thing, the joy of my old heart. And as his eyes began to well, she reached to touch his face, and then her quivering voice began to give one final grace. This is the day that the Lord has made, the one he's brought to pass. This day was written in his book before my first was passed. The Lord has granted us to spend together all these years. He's also granted all the joy and even all our tears. And though this is a bitter day, we owe him so much thanks. Dear, we made it. By him we did. Yes, we made it. By grace. And here's the prayer. O oh, Father, grant that we may see our days as at their end. O oh, let us know the weight of grace in every year we spend. We make this prayer unto you, for there is no one higher. This testimony of your grace we desperately desire. Father, I pray that you would give us testimonies of grace. That our marriages would bear witness to the glory of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised for his radiant bride. And I pray that our marriages would be beacons of light to sinners who need to see what real love looks like in real life when it's hard. Give us grace, Father. Do this in us and among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.